Welcome to the Prison Mindfulness Podcast, presented by the Prison Mindfulness Institute. In this podcast, we'll be talking with experts in the fields of prison mindfulness and prison dharma, discussing their transformative work in prisons and jails. This is Vita Pyrdes, the Executive Director of Prison Mindfulness Institute. I'm happy to be here with Justin. Yes, Van Boydash. <laughs> Sorry, Justin. That's okay. <laughs> Who is uh, is an American Vajrayana Buddhist teacher, writer, and is the co-founder of Bodhi... Uh, Bumishpasha. Bumishpasha, yeah. an experimental Buddhist sangha, along with Mama Rod Owens. He is the author of Modern Tantric Buddhism, Authenticity and Embodiment in Dharma Practice, published by North Atlantic Books, and a contributor to Buddhism and Whiteness, Critical Reflections, published by Lexington Books. From 2016 to December 2021, Justin served as the Executive Director of Chaplaincy and Staff Wellness for the New York City Department of Corrections where he also served as head chaplain, supervising over 30 chaplains and guiding wellness programming for staff. Justin was ordained as a Repa, a lay tantric yogin in the tradition of Milarepa. His, by his eminence, Gyaltsa Rinpoche, and has presented on Buddhist practice at Harvard, Princeton, Yale, University of Chicago, Wellesley, Columbia University, and has been a visiting instructor at Union Theological Seminary. Welcome, Justin. Yeah, thank you. It's lovely to be here with you. So you've been doing this work for quite a while and teaching, teaching Dharma. And um, maybe you could just begin to tell us a little bit about your work and what drew you to ever work with this particular population. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, so in uh, 2012, I um, started a Dharma Center for uh, Gelsa Rinpoche in Brooklyn and wanted to do some kind of work that was, uh, you know, engaging communities that don't necessarily get served by Dharma and started off um, by reaching out to folks on Rikers Island to uh, inquire around meditation uh, offerings for people in custody and started um, around then offering um, meditation first for um the uh, female uh, population of people in custody, and then uh, began moving uh, slowly from there into working with um, some of the most violent offenders um, on, on Rikers as they developed new programming and, and recognized the importance of, of meditation, both for um, uh, stress reduction, definitely uh, meaning making, and um, for practical purposes, I think there was a recognition uh, by the department that there was, uh, a, you know, a kind of um, tonal change with respect to behavior, um, at least shortly after the sessions. Um, and um, at the time, I was working as a hospice chaplain, and uh, eventually a position became available to be um, the first um, uh, chaplain dedicated just for staff. And so I took that and then was promoted, et cetera. So, wow. So Rikers is, you know, has kind of a reputation as being one of a challenging place for someone to end up. Mm-hmm. So what do you, what do you find was the most challenging aspect of trying to work in that environment and per se? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was interesting. Um, I think the thing that really kind of uh, opened my eyes uh, to the 
like the vast complexity of, of what we find uh, in uh, New York City Department of Correction, especially on Rikers, uh, occurred when I began working with staff. Um, <clears throat> and this is still when I was volunteering. And, and in that moment, uh, I was able to kind of see the quote unquote other side of the gate, right? The people that um, leave at the end of their tour or, or don't if they get, uh, you know, uh, double tours. But, um, uh, you know, I, I began to kind of get a sense of, of the broad cross section of all of the humanity uh, on the island. And then, of course, you know, all of the suffering as well. And so, so there are a lot of the sufferings that I think you could definitely say are unique to uh, the detainee population. Um, and then when you add, um, you know, the stressors, anxieties, and um, uh, the impact of working in a place plagued by uh, dysfunctional violence, uh, how that how that affects the staff's ability to actually respond, you know, as as uh, they should. Um, it is a place in need of serious reform. And and while I worked there, I, I did have the uh, opportunity and the benefit to report directly to the commissioner for uh, the agency, which was great. And and in many ways, I was able to make some change, um, but. Um, you know, I think that uh, the the way everything stands now, the the level of violence, the um, problems that staff face, and um, the support, you know, the the immense support needed for staff to be able to to function over the course of a career is is really quite uh, quite intense. So you talked to both staff and um, folks who are incarcerated, and anxiety is a really huge issue, it seems like. So what, did you give practices that were helpful, or did they report back any, you know? Like yeah. So initially, I worked with people in custody as a volunteer, but then when I was hired, uh, I was no longer able to work with people in custody directly because I was often visiting with staff at home and uh, you know, had uh, access to, you know, a lot of confidential information. Um, so for, with staff, the, the kind of main thing that I focused on was this kind of intersection, well, a couple of things. I think you could say the intersection of um, meditation uh, around being able to listen very deeply to one's own needs. So that could be anything from being very um, tired or stressed out or having family problems, uh, which then lead one to uh, have a lot on one's mind while working in an environment where um, you know, situational awareness is quite important uh, for safety and things like that. Um, uh, I also tried really hard to kind of um, blend in um, some aspects of meditation that you find in the Tibetan tradition around connecting to spaciousness mm -hmm. as a way to be able to shift people's experience from the intensity of the myopic experience uh, in the moment, the violence, not being able to leave post, um, sometimes heat. You know, there are a lot of problems with um, you know air conditioning uh, uh, on the island, and staff wear these very uh, heavy uniforms. Um, uh, and, and just, you know, all of the things that, that might occur over the course of their day so that people can connect to something much larger than themselves. 
um, whether it be the, the faith that they practice or um, or no faith or um, you know just wanting to to get a as, as staff would say like a wusa moment. Um, and when I was working with people in custody, um, there was a deputy commissioner I was working with while as a volunteer who um, asked me to work with some of the most violent offenders on the island in some new housing areas that were being designed, uh, specifically around violence and reactivity. And so uh, under those circumstances, what I spent a lot of time doing was um, uh, sitting with the men and um, listening to stories of people's relationships to violence from, from very, very early on, in some cases, you know, as, even as young as toddlers, to what happened um, right before maybe this meditation session began, and then uh, helping people to track uh, through awareness practices the physiological uh, kind of bellwethers around when anger is arising, rage is arising, how to be able to listen, um, and, and then really kind of feeling into this kind of linchpin moment of being able to, uh, you know, be faced with either acting on this or stepping back and saying, you know, uh, this really isn't worth it right now, you know, under these circumstances. And um, in so, uh, several of these enhanced security housing, area, uh, housing areas, um, I worked for as long as nine months with, um, again, these were people who were facing charges of manslaughter, um, murder and who had slashed or stabbed uh, people while in custody, those folks would make it into these housing areas and then I would uh, work with them there. So it was a bit of a mixed bag, but I think, you know, across the board, the similarity was uh, rooted in uh, helping people to empower um, themselves to be able to understand really what's, you know, uh, arising as an undercurrent to their experience. Um, so that if you're a staff member, you're able to make the right decisions, you're able to care for yourself, you're able to obviously provide uh, safety and the necessary support for people in custody and your peers. And then for people in custody um, uh, to um, not reoffend while in the facilities while also spending time in a, um, you know, as best as one could, could have it, a contemplative relationship to um, their own reactivity in the moment. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So as you were talking about that, I, you know, especially when you were talking about the police officers or the corrections officers who had the clothing on, it was all too hot. And, you know, then there's all the stress and then there's the people incarcerated and their uncomfortable situations and where they came from and why they ended up there and why they even, have, you know, and so what about, you know, like I, I recently introduced, I, di I didn't call it this, but Paticca Samupada, you know, like how causes and conditions all come together that are so much, there are so many of them create any given moment. And when I present, they were, they were kind of like, there was some kind of relief, you know, from them like, oh, you're right. It wasn't just A equals B, because sometimes I think, you know, people think, oh, I did I had to do this thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any choice. Well, there was all kinds of things coming together to create this kind of perfect storm moment, including maybe your clothes were uncomfortable, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know? So it just kind of, I, it helped them. To, they said to kind of step back and go, Oh, right. 
Yeah. Not just me. Being a bad person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that in particular, I mean, you know, the shame, you know, the role of of shame um, in coping with what, you know, either why one might find themselves incarcerated or uh, as staff members. There have been some studies done on the negative impacts of um, uh, media images of correction officers and, and, and how that leads to, you know, not only just a, a sense of um, a lack of morale in the work, but the sense of being disrespected, the sense of not being taken seriously, the sense of being perceived, uh, you know, as as a thug or as a villain, um, which is the case, you know, I, I think you could say, broadly speaking, in in the media uh, world of New York City, um, and and so yeah, it it doesn't take much for people to to feel um, pushed into a very negative place when. Um, Everything is presented in, in a, as you point out, maybe too much of a black and white kind mm-hmm. of way. It's it's your fault. It's your, you, know, you made the error. You 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 you, um, and then and then very similarly, right? The whole system that's surrounded creating this. Well, yeah, and I think that this is this kind of speaks to much wider reform that needs to happen in the criminal justice system because, um, as 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 you see, and actually this is, is something that I I. I uh, Really opened my eyes uh, to when I first started working uh, on Rikers was the recognition that if we had better social services across the board, there would be fewer people in custody, especially um, uh, public mental health services. Um, at, I'm sure the statistics are pretty um, stable across the country. But in, in, in New York City, it's estimated that somewhere between 55 to 60 percent of people in custody suffer from mental illness. And if they were receiving the proper treatment, um, you know, which includes, I, I guess, dual diagnosis, um, substance abuse issues, um, uh, these folks wouldn't have to be, uh, you know, incarcerated. And I think between that, education, food access, you know, right. job support, and so this speaks exactly to your point, like all of the complex causes and conditions, everything from, you know, dropping out of high school to, you know, every little thing can contribute in, in uh, different ways, not only around, you know, ending up or you know, being a person of color, um, you know, uh, all of these factors, um, you know, make it, make it very complex. Um, so what is what is the shadow side of showing up and working in the correctional system in light of the sort of prison abolition kind of work? Yeah, well, so this, yeah, I mean, I think that um, it was interesting, you know, as, uh, as I was getting ready to leave DOC, um, a friend of mine, uh, a colleague had, had, come over and she was like, you know, you, oh, you've done all this amazing work, you know, working with staff, all this stuff. And, but isn't it amazing that you and I probably make this place worse by um, you know, ba- <laughs> basically gussying up a system that is just broken? And this is something that I, I had had to contend with, um, you know, while I worked with DOC. I think, you know, for some reason, volunteering, it felt a little cleaner um, so to speak, but, but when working within the system and being somebody who folks would, 
they would they would kind of roll me out when you know city council people would be touring the island or uh, you know, and they'd be like, well, here's, here's our like head chaplain who's Buddhist and can provide you know, meditation and really like, you know, really kind of made people very excited. Um, and, you know, I think that while there was a decent amount of room I had to, to, to make some progressive change, um, we really are best served by being fairly critical of the system and uh you know my my particular feeling at this point is that um these systems i mean the whole criminal justice system needs radical transformation and um that's not to say there isn't suffering going on in rikers right now at this very moment and it's and and there are people there that need support on both sides of the gate but um I guess the question is, is when and to what respect can we help break this particular cycle of violence um, that the, the carceral system uh, creates, propagates, and, um, you know, uh, generationally? And so I, I guess for me right now, I'm, I am curious as to whether or not um, you know these more progressive offerings like meditation, mindfulness, etc., actually sully the waters a little bit, um, making it much harder to actually um, uh, maybe put one's foot down and say, you know what, this this has to stop. Yeah, but then again, the I hear from so many uh, people, folks inside, that this is helps them get through their excruciatingly suffering moments they're having in being where they are yeah where they don't have anything really to go to else yeah. you know, on the outside so it's kind of like well at least this is giving me something absolutely yeah absolutely yeah no i, I you know again kind of you know <laughs> stepping back from the black and white um this is complicated you know yeah. and it's complicated for a lot of different reasons and and i think that um i guess you know one of the things that i would often say um you know at DOC was, uh, you know, the main mission that I wanted to accomplish there was to be able to be a force of compassion within a system which can be quite um, harsh. And I think that that is necessary no matter what. And I think that um, it really falls upon us to continue to push and push and push and you know this this means you know pushing uh in local government state government federal government uh circles around really uh re-envisioning what the carceral system you know what its intention really should be how it shows up to do the work if maybe even if it can you know achieve its intended purposes because right now in, in new york city uh it's debatable as to whether or not um you know, new york city department of correction is able to actually accomplish um everything that it's tasked to do um because of um staffing problems uh lack of vision um burnout burnout yeah COVID, COVID. yeah i mean yeah. <laughs> exactly yeah hurricanes you know yeah 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 it's a lot it's yeah. a lot 
And, and, you know, the, the kind of um, fluctuating political winds don't help. Yeah. You know, you might yeah. have somebody come in and say, you know, we're, we're going to uh, implement all this reform. And then the next mayor comes in and, and shifts, thing, shifts everything in a different direction. And I, I'm not naive uh, about the political side of things. However, we tend to forget that there are people who are so radically affected by, um, you know, it could be the decisions that are being made, but often they're radically affected by the decisions that nobody has the strength to actually stand up to make. And I think that that's, that's where, uh, you know, major problem is. Yeah. That, in that film that we had about our thing, the path of freedom that reminded me of that, um, gentleman in Rhode Island who said, this isn't a place to be to breed a better criminal or a better person. It's a, it's a place to breed a better criminal. Mm-hmm. You know, the way the conditioning is in there, it's just kind of, and I, I know in a class I was teaching there, they, the guys were telling me, um, yeah, people get a lot. I said, well, what about you guys mentoring? And they go, yeah, everybody gets really good mentoring here. You mm-hmm. have to be, you yeah. know, be more violent in a way, you know, because that's the only way they're going to survive. Right. You know, so it's like, okay, how do we, yeah, it's just a huge, uh, you know, but I do think there are some strides being made, but in changing the system. Yeah, yeah. I think that oftentimes police and public safety are trained in tactical methods to deal with like, I, I, I'm not going to run into a burning building. I don't have the skills to save people, you know, and drag them out of a burning building. Or, I, I mean, a lot of people are talking about, can we change it so the social workers are dealing with people instead of police? But then I talked to some social workers. They're like, are you kidding me? I'm not going to deal with somebody who's, on opioids and running at me with a gun, I don't even know what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's mm-hmm. this mix of like compassionate training and tactical training that has to happen with some people that have gotten to the end of the line and they do resort to violence, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, um, I was quite close with um, one of the chiefs of the department when I uh, was working at DOC and it was, it was great uh, to kind of have my eyes open to the whole kind of tactical response piece. And um, much of the work I ended up doing uh, responding to staffing crisis meant that I was on call 24 seven. I was, you know, often responding to, to staff who were um, assaulted or injured or, um, you know, after hours, um, in some cases, you know, uh, even, even murdered. Um, the, the violence part isn't the concern for me. Um, personally, I think it's, it's the structural violence, um, you know, around the system. Um, and I think that in addition to this, I, I, I feel like, you know, maybe it's just being Buddhist, but I feel like there's a huge blind spot in our culture where, you know, which is uh, veers heavily towards the binary, especially with respect to criminal justice, and uh, doesn't allow for there to be any option other than, you know, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, the sinner and the person who follows all the rules. And the labeling that we end up um, engaging in for people who find themselves on the wrong side of the law, as it were, uh, is so damaging. And as you point out, uh, you know, it, it, it places people in these positions where it's much easier to just reinvest in that world and, you know, receive all of the mentorship one needs 
to be able to um, to be a criminal, for example. Um, and it seems to absolve people from the hard work, even the hard contemplative work of being in community with one another and learning forgiveness and learning, um, you know, how to show up to communities uh, that are different. And um, this is where um, this is where the work needs to happen. You know, I, half of my chaplaincy training was on locked psych floors, and and so I'm I'm comfortable being in secure locations with you know people who might be unstable. Um, and in DOC, there were you know people in custody who were unstable, and I would often deal with staff who are unstable. So when it gets to that point. No problem. You know, there needs to be a certain kind of tactical response. But, um, you know, when you look at young men and young women who are coming into the system for the first time, and you see how very easily the system will help them, re you know, replicate, um, you know, stories that may have happened in their communities or, or families uh, of returning and returning and returning and returning in the cycles of harm are um, just made worse, um, that's where I think um, more work needs to happen and just, it, it essentially becomes political, whether we're political people or not. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because when we look at, at like the faith background behind the Buddhist tradition or the faith background behind the Christian tradition, People like the Buddha and people like Jesus were inherently political because they were pushing people to love one another <laughs> and to, to, to show up and be respectful. And and in these systems where everything is such hard, you know, such hard lines, hard boxes that everybody is placed in, to to ask people to see things differently, including themselves, is inherently going against the stream. Yeah, when I first started doing this, maybe 25 or so years ago, um, it was really hard to get a program in because, it, because you know, we were from Buddhist background, even though we were saying it was, you know, not what was just going to be meditation, but there was mindfulness wasn't the big deal then. So it was all about like, trying to pacify get people that were not trying to take people to the devil. And when I understood like, oh, this is what they really believe, they think we're going to harm people's mm -hmm. minds by doing this, then it was like, okay you know we're just keep keeping getting in a relationship with them and then they said okay you guys seem okay you know after a while yeah. but now there's this mindfulness thing now every, you know now that mindfulness is the craze everywhere and on the magazine covers that like oh my god let's get a mindfulness program in here and that's going to be like our new solution yeah so yeah. what Oh, totally. I mean, uh, I I saw the limitations of that with the with all sides of trauma happening there. You know, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw this on the staff side of things, where, um, you know, in it was this time last year, actually, um, uh, a very high percentage of the staff were, were forced to work triples, and <clears throat> so um, you know that's that's over twenty four hours or about twenty four hours, and. Um, people were asking me, well, like, you know, can we, can we introduce some mindfulness? I mean, we, yeah, we could, you know, we could definitely try that. Um, however, you know, 
there's this thing called Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and yeah. <laughs> there, there are things such as sleep and you know right. access to food, and and you know the the kind of more basic um, you know human biological needs that need to be attended to, and I think that. Um, Again, you know, just as much as we see mindfulness being implemented in uh, the corporate world, I, I don't have a particular um, issue with it outside of um, the fact that it, I don't think it can live up to the expectations that it, that it promises. And, you know, we have to question um, mindfulness implemented, I, I believe, um, uh, towards a more productive role within a capitalist system that is just causing a tremendous amount of harm environmentally. Um, even, even with respect to this adjustment post-COVID to um, working at home or going into the office, right? You know, some people might say that it's more efficient for everybody to return to the office. Not all human behavior has to be rooted in efficiency. Right. And when we're recovering from, or or even just beginning to recognize the level of traumatization that that we may encounter, either as a person who's incarcerated or working in the carceral system, uh, you know, the the recognition of traumatization really ought to be able to be held outside of uh, you know the, the brackets of of productivity <laughs> and job <laughs> satisfaction, because you know they're they're. It's not to say that they're not connected. But it's not to say that they, um, you know, dovetail um, very well into one another or very neatly into one another. So how, how, what would be your recommendations for someone who's really excited to go in and teach mindfulness at Rikers? Yeah, so I, I would say, that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's uh, all enthusiastic and think this is going to be so great. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I definitely think people, you know, should engage the work. Um, when I was training volunteers uh, to, to work with people in custody, uh, the first thing I, I taught people is, is, you know, you need to learn how to um, break apart these instructions and so that you can actually explain them from your own voice, from a place of authenticity, because um, if everybody has their, their script, <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, most people would just say, you know, get the hell out of this, you know, the housing yeah. area or whatever. Like, you know, get out of here. I, I, I don't need you. Um, this is crazy. You don't know anything about my life. You don't know anything about the intensity. And I used to get this all the time where people would ask, you know, what, what's the worst thing you ever did? Like, if you can tell me something messed up that you did, I will listen to you. Right. Um, so there's, there's kind of that reality. Um, I, you know, I, I do think that people who offer these um, services, again, I think the services are ultimately quite noble, but um, some uh, kind of critical work around spiritual bypassing and confirmation bias, I think, is really important. So that one isn't just going in there necessarily to make oneself feel better mm -hmm. um, or to, to kind of propagate a story um, of the, the noble um, <laughs> the noble Dharma practitioner who's, you know, healing, healing the world. And it's not to say we're not healing the world, but, um, but there's pain everywhere. And I think this work really, 
asks us to to be able to be deeply in touch with our own pain and our own wounding because we're sitting with others where that might get touched upon and where a, a compassionate response just by sometimes providing space, holding space for people, um, uh, becomes a valuable piece of the work. Um, and, you know, I, w- I really would ask people to just keep this, like, you know, little critical voice in the back of one's head around, um, am I really creating benefit here? Um, and it, again, it's it's not to say that offering meditation in the carceral system does not bring benefit. But in certain circumstances, um, I think it can lead to a whitewashing of much larger, you know, systemic cultural problems that in some cases will continue to cause harm in a very serious way. It could be that, you know, the volunteer leaves and then the gates shut and it goes back to hell. And so the argument is as well, you know, with this, this one hour or 45 minutes, of non-hell, you know, is that worth it? And, and, you know, generally I think it is. However, um, once the person gets in there, the system needs to be able to be flexible so that these things can kind of bleed and trickle into um, other aspects of the way jail facilities and prisons um, run or, or anywhere in the criminal justice system. If there are people who do this, you know, um, more broadly in law enforcement with um, any kind of uniform staff. Yeah. I mean, I, I really got that when I was working in the juvie hall with several different juvie halls and, um, you know, I just had to give up my agenda. There was no way I was going to go with an agenda with what was going on there, but so I, one time I didn't show up. And, and then I came back, you know, because I was sick or something happened. And they, nobody told him. I had called him, but nobody told him why I wasn't there. And then the next week, some kid said to me, you know, nobody, come, nobody comes to see a lot of us. And, and if they do, it's for a reason, like our lawyer. But I sort of feel like you just come here because you like us. And, and I thought, oh, and that really meant something to him. And so he said, so I was kind of upset when you weren't, didn't show up. You know, it was kind of like, oh, yeah, right. It was me just showing up. Mm-hmm. It was having the impact because nobody else was showing up or him anywhere. Yeah. And I've had them tell also the same group of kids told me, you know, I asked them, why are you mumbling so much? You know, and they said, everybody says that to us. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, because nobody wants to hear us. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and then I said, well, I do. You know, but I said, I did, I meant it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the guy goes, Thank you, Miss. And he was like a real tough guy. And he said, thank you, Miss. I was like, oh, God. You know, because nobody listens. Yeah. Because they're getting yelled at, you know, called, they called them scumbags there a lot. And they were mm-hmm. scumbags, you scumbags. I don't think people get it that being how rough this is on young minds to be conditioned in this way, that the whole world is calling them a scumbag and calling them a number. Yeah, putting them in these crummy clothes and making them eat crummy food and putting them in boxes and you know just the reality of it is so far from any reality of people on the outside. It's not like TV or oh yeah black or anything like that sometimes. But you know, just very hard to put yourself. But I think sometimes just showing up is makes it you know it's not necessarily putting a fluff on the whole system, Mm -hmm. but at least. They've got somebody to shut up at least once in their life, you know. 
Absolutely. Yeah. We get that from, we send books to people. They're like, nobody ever sends us stuff for nothing. Yeah. It's like, well, we are, you know, and we'll continue. Yeah. That's meant so much. Just getting yeah. a book. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Think about getting a book. Yeah. We, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things I would uh, often tell either volunteers or uh, divinity school students um, who were coming to Rikers was that, you know, at the end of the day, we can leave, you know, and um, that very difference between us and the people that are being served is hugely significant. And we might not be, we might not even ever think of it, you know, maybe occasionally it might, you know, sink into our heads crossing the bridge uh, off of Rikers. But, you know, for every time one leaves a housing area, like you are demonstrating a freedom and a power that everybody who is in that housing area does not have. And so to be able to show up, to show up on weekends, to show up on holidays, holidays you know, is, um, you know, has a uh, huge impact. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it is, it is, it is just, um, it's complicated. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there are all sorts of things that need to change. And in New York City, uh, you know, there's a big push to um, switch over to a borough-based jail system so that it, at the very least it makes it easier for people to come visit you know Rikers yeah. Island is pretty yeah. um inconvenient to visit and and you know in terms of you know security uh, and tactical response it's ideal because it's an island you can lock the island down right. etc um but it's very hard for people to to come visit and it's it's hard for volunteers to come to as well you know relying on public transportation um, so that's a really good example of, of, you know, how to be able to, you know, the, the reason why perhaps I think you could say we need to integrate even, even any kind of, you know, structures, you know, into the wider fabric of, a of, a you know, urban culture or even rural culture, moving it, uh, moving these people, not like in New York state away from the border of Canada, <laughs> you know, and a little bit closer to the communities from which, you know, these folks, uh, have, have family and friends and loved ones so that these, these, you know, relationships can, um, be maintained. I think even in our own lives, when we feel isolated, you know, isolated from family, isolated from friends, isolated from community, uh, is when we begin to suffer. And I think that, you know, that that is just more palpably seen in correctional settings because people are isolated to begin with. But then, you know, some of these larger issues around, um, you know, where jails and, and uh, prisons are, are located definitely does not help. So one of the questions that you want to talk about was how can people show up in a way that's non-colonial? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny, there was a very um, well-known um, uh, meditation program that, that wanted to come to, to uh, New York City Department of Correction, and they had very um, proprietary rules for them. You know, if we're going to do this, like, we get, you know, we're going to need a little bit of, like, you know, press as a result. We're going to need this. We're going to need that. Um, the, and I, somebody reached out to me and asked me what I thought of it. And I was like, oh, well, you know, would you, would you mind them sending me their literature? And they did. 
and uh, and so I, I was talking to them, and I, I I was talking to them about languaging, and they wanted to language everything so that it was that this program was you know helping people and saving people you know, from, from and you know again this was a meditation program, and I was just like you know I mean, this is not going to happen. <laughs> You know, this is just not going to happen because, you know, when we, so like, you know, for example, like, it, uh, and this is a case in, in, you know, state and federal corrections as well, but in, in, um, in New York city, uh, anybody who's incarcerated does not have the ability to give consent, right? That, 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 you know, is taken away from you when, when you're, you know, come in as a detainee, let alone, you know, you're convicted and become quote unquote property of the state. And so as a result, it is, a, you know, people who are incarcerated are a protected class, right? They, they do not have the same um, uh, freedoms and rights uh, as you or I or, or anybody who's watching this does. And, and therefore, um, a really, for, for, from my own kind of ethical standpoint, a, a really thorough um, analysis needs to happen with respect to what I am bringing to the people I am serving, whether they're people in custody or staff. Um, and the colonial aspect of this is, is really, you know, rooted in whether we're seeing these people that we're working with uh, or serving in that moment as uh, numbers to tick off, like, oh, see, like, you know, we served X, X number of people this week. Um, are they, you know, how are we addressing their basic humanity? Um, you know, what is our relationship to, um, you know, productivity? in all of this. And, you know, I, I tend to, I mean, I tell this to my meditation students all the time. Um, it's my goal for meditation to make you less practical. <laughs> you know, it's really about feeling out into, you know, some kind of larger sense of, of being, being, being Vita, being Justin, you know, being whoever we are in the moment. And, that is where, you know, the, the, the root benefit, I, I feel at least, in, in this is. And um, yeah, as, as with every, every kind of uh, human endeavor, there are some people who are, are able to very um, uh, respectfully, safely, harmoniously be able to provide every kind of service. It doesn't have to just be meditation for others. And then, and then there are groups for whom, um, uh, you know, notoriety is important, you know, and quote unquote, we find in, in the Buddhist world, we'll talk about name and fame, um, becomes a motivating factor. And again, just given the fact that I had to do a lot of, um, emergency response for people in custody who's who do not have the same rights that I had just draws home to me the importance of being able to show up in a highly sensitive and highly respectful way um, and um, it just seems uh, like a no-brainer you know at, at, yeah. at this point um, 
and you know, again, it, it's complicated, right? Working in a in a in a helping profession uh, will sometimes um, causes us to have a very kind of strong sense of induced emotion around the benefit that we're creating, and that is something to to celebrate, right? I mean, you know, the the, the benefit is being created; the people's lives are being made. Uh, perhaps more meaningful, perhaps being centered or rooted or grounded, or or perhaps people are um, able to connect with necessary support to cope with the loss or the sadness or or you know the the trauma that they're in the midst of recovering from, or sometimes in some cases just recognizing that I celebrate that a hundred percent. But I think you know for caregivers we also need to be able to. Um, you know, keep this healthy voice in the back of our head around, you know, when am I kind of being whipped up into some kind of frothy, you know, mania <laughs> around how great this work is and how great my organization is and how great the work is that we're doing. Um, because again, you know, what is it, what is, what is it really about? It's, it's really about helping others. We're providing support for others to be able to, um, be themselves, you know, feel respected, you know, connect to that human dignity that, that you or I or, you know, again, anybody watching this, uh, you know, really ultimately values the most. So what, you know, on that note, you know, as a person in there helping or supporting or whatever you've been doing, what did you learn from that? What have you learned about yourself and about humanity? I mean, you have said a lot of things you learned about humanity, but mm -hmm. I'm just saying personally, what kind of things did you learn about your own practice? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, this a, it's a really good question. Um, you know, so for, with respect to my own practice, like I, I think what what I learned the most was the value of um, specifically non-conceptual meditation, things like, you know, in, in the Tibetan tradition, we talk about Mahamudra or Dzogchen. Uh, so these, these very kind of profoundly, um, maybe we could say like ra radically open awareness practices um, as a way of centering into a deep resilience to be able to be available for others. Um, you know, a lot of, again, a lot of my work was um, emergency response, Almost all of it was at night. Um, for for over five years, I got less than five hours of sleep a night every night, and um, I made it a, a, a really uh, central part of my work to respond with you know high level of integrity to those who are in crisis, um, which means that. I was often running on fumes, which also meant that I had to learn how to kind of quote unquote drop into my practice as a way of recognizing what am I bringing into this situation? You know, what am I bringing into this housing area? What am I bringing into this hospital room to meet with a staff member or to the family of a staff member who died? Um, so that kind of off the cushion situational practice was was a, a you know a huge um, benefit um, for me, uh, and then and then you know another another kind of um, uh, personal level, I get a lot out of 
practicing in places that are very dark. So correctional systems. And then even, you know, when COVID um, hit in New York City, uh, because I, I uh, was a chaplain working for New York City, and at the time, um, the New York City's uh, New York City's Potter's Field was run by New York City Department of Correction. Mm-hmm. Then I was asked to uh, bless the bodies of um, uh, all the city residents who ended up being buried there uh, in that first wave. And that ended up being over 3,000 bodies um, you know, within the first year. And I did that at five in the morning, you know, as needed. And then I would go to Rikers from there. And there was this process of just giving myself over to the intensity of it all, trusting into this larger process of uh, understanding that not only I, but you, and again, everybody, you know, watching this is so much more resourced than we can possibly imagine. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of letting go into that. Um, so that that was, you know, I, I, I could think of all these reasons why I, I should have a chip on my shoulder <laughs> about the work, but I, but I don't. I'm, I'm so super grateful, you know, for, for the challenge. Yeah. Well, I guess we're at the end of our time. I really thank you so much. It was very inspiring to hear from you and hear all your knowledge and wisdom about working here and bravo oh thank you yeah benefited so many people yeah well it's my pleasure and you know again i i really love the work that that um you all do with the um prison mindfulness institute and um keep going keep yeah, going yeah. <laughs> keep going to those dark places yes there's plenty <laughs> of them <you>. out there <laughs> thank you thank you justin thank you vita take care you will Thank you for listening. To learn more about PMI and our programs, please visit prisonmindfulness.org. You can also keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn.